Good morning, White Oak. Last week, uh, John walked us through the book of Judges and how even in such a dark time of Israel's history, the grace of God was proven to be unfathomable. Today's sermon is going to be about the era of kings in Israel's history, and it's going to contain a lot of information But if there's one thing that I want you to take with you as you leave this morning, if there's one thing I want you to be absolutely convinced of by the time you walk out of here, it's that God is the author of your salvation. Now I use that phrase very specifically because when we think of authorship, we think of a story. And let me just tell you, the story that God has written which ultimately resulted in your own personal salvation, is a story that could not possibly have been written by anyone other than the infinitely wise God of the universe. The amount of themes and plot elements that come together in various ways that connect all at the end, it's so complex it makes like the stories of William Shakespeare look like Twilight. And then, yes, I did just pick the best thing and the worst thing in English literature. (laughs) So I want you to keep that in mind, this idea that God is the author of your salvation as we get into the book of the exposition, because I promise this has radical implications for your life. So the era of kings is not much better than the era of judges as far as the history of the Israeli people. But before I explain all of that, let me quickly recap the entire story of the Bible thus far so as to resituate our minds in the historical context of this people. So, God creates the world. Everything's good. Man does something bad. Everything's not good. We're kicked out of the garden, and the world kind of falls into destruction. Eventually, God finds a man named Abram who um, has faith in God, and that faith is counted to him as righteousness. And so God likes Abram so much, he's going to make a covenant with Abram. He renames him Abraham, and out of Abraham's family is going to come this great nation and this great land, which will ultimately be a blessing to all of God's people. And this is going to be the way that God reconciles the entire fallen world back to himself. So Abraham's family grows, and uh, it ends up making its way to their friendly neighbors, the Egyptians. Um, And the Egyptians turn out not to be so friendly after a while, and they enslave the Israeli people. And so there's about 400 years of slavery while the Israelites are in the land of Egypt until God raises up a man named Moses. And through Moses, God delivers the people out of the Egyptian captivity— This is a very dramatic scene. This is where they cross the Red Sea, which is parted before them. It's a vast work of God. And so God creates a covenant with the people of Israel based on the grace that he has already shown them in delivering them from Egyptian captivity. And this covenant basically says, I have placed before you the path of life and the path of death. And I'm leaving it up to you. If you follow my commandments, I will bless you abundantly. And if you don't, then you will experience cursing, because that's just what it means to be my people. 
And so this um, leads the Israelites into a lot of trouble because the thing about the commandments is it's really hard to follow all of them. And so the Israelites end up wandering around in this wilderness as they're trying to find their way to the promised land. And eventually God raises up a guy named Joshua to lead them into the promised land. And this enters into a time of war and conquest and battles as they're fighting to try and take this land. After Joshua dies, they continue to need political leaders. And this is when God raises up judges. And so the thing about judges, it's it's a cycle. People are oppressed, and so they cry out to God, and God sends them a judge. The judge delivers them from their oppression, and everything's great for a while. But then generations start to die, and they forget about the God that saved them in the first place, and they turn from God, and they start worshiping other gods. And so God sends oppressors to kind of oppress them, and out of their oppression, they cry back out to God, and God sends another judge. And it's this cycle that goes on and on and on. And so this takes us to the very last person who acted as judge over Israel. His name is Samuel. Samuel is an awesome guy. He's so awesome, he gets two books of the Bible written after him, okay? And he's going to be a key player in this transition from the era of judges into the era of kings. And so he's acting as judge over Israel. He's telling them to turn from their ways. And this takes us to 1 Samuel chapter 8. It'll be up here on the screen, but if you have your Bible, I encourage you to flip there with me. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 22. It says, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all of the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. 
and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. This is a perfect example of when the worst thing that could possibly happen to us is for God to give us what we ask for. You ever done that? You pray to God, asking for something, you never get it, and then you forget about it. A year later, you look back and you remember a time when you so fervently prayed for this one thing, and all you can do is thank God that in his abundant grace and wisdom, he didn't give that to you. That's exactly what this is. Except this time, God gave it to them. He said, okay, you want a king? I will give you a king, but you're going to regret it. You see, Israel's fault here is that they didn't need a king. They had a king. God was their king. Yahweh, who delivered them out of Egypt, who constantly tried to remind them, look, I am powerful enough to split the ocean apart to protect you. Why do you need someone to fight your battles? I'm fighting your battles. But they just wanted an earthly ruler, someone to sit on a throne because everyone else around them was doing it. So the result was the start of an age of a long period of destruction in the nation of Israel. You could honestly count on one hand the number of really good kings that reigned in Israel. Largely, it's just one bad king after another, after another, leading the nation into destruction. During this time, the tribes split themselves up. The two tribes of the south kind of rebel, and they don't want to be a part of the nation anymore. And so now there's this split, two nations, where there's the ten northern tribes of Israel and the two southern tribes of Judah. So now there's not even a united kingdom anymore. Now they're being destroyed separately Eventually, the northern tribes get wiped out and exiled from their lands by a group of people called the Assyrians. And the southern tribes, even though they lasted a little longer, they eventually suffer the same fate at the hands of the Babylonians. This sounds like a lot of the book of Judges, right? This sounds like a lot of the book of Joshua, how a lot of bad things happen to the people of Israel. And if you're thinking the Old Testament is kind of repetitive, that's because it kind of is. The Old Testament is largely just a really long, drawn-out story of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's faithfulness in spite of that. This is no different. But it wasn't all bad. Unlike the book of Judges, where everything is awful and there aren't much redeeming qualities about it, there was still light in the midst of the darkness of the Israeli kingdom. So I want to focus on two really good things that came out of Israel turning itself into a kingdom. And the first one is King David. David is a guy that lived right at the beginning of the kingdom, during the reign of the first king of Israel, whose name was Saul. And Saul actually kind of started out pretty good. Um, He's described basically as like the Zac Efron of the Bible, right? He's—it goes into an interesting length to describe how handsome this man was. Um, but he quickly declines. He quickly proves that he's no good and that he is a corrupt king. And so God rejects Saul. 
And so God instructs Samuel, who's still around judging Israel, acting as the priest of Israel, he instructs Samuel to go find a man named Jesse. And one of Jesse's sons is going to be the next king of Israel. And so Samuel goes and uh, he finds Jesse and Jesse begins to show him all of his sons because Samuel's like, one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. So he's like, okay, here are all my sons. Um, And one by one, Jesse shows them to him and they each have an appealing quality about them. One of them is really strong. One of them is really handsome. One of them seems really wise. And so Samuel's like, surely this is the one. But at each one, God's like, no, that's not the one. That's not it. That's not it. And finally, he reaches the end of him and God hasn't chosen anyone. And so Samuel's like, well, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's he says, yeah, well, there's David, my youngest, but he's out in the, sh- he's out in the field plowing um, the field and tending the sheep. And this is his way of saying, you don't want him. He's not going to make a good king. He, he's the one that we have watching the sheep because that's not really that important of a job. Samuel's like, I'll wait, bring him in. So David walks in. And as soon as Samuel sees him, God says, arise, anoint him, this is your guy. And the text says, after Samuel anoints David, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. That is one of the best summary sentences of the entire reign of David that I could find. And so David goes with Samuel and ends up in the service of King Saul, because as it turns out, Saul needed someone who was a really skillful musician because he was having bad dreams and he wanted to soothe himself. And David really knew how to play the lyre. He was really, really good on this stringed instrument called the lyre. And so he becomes the King Saul's personal musician. And this is when the battle with the Philistines happened and Goliath enters the picture. And so the scene is that Israel is on one side of this valley. And the Philistines, their worst enemies, camp on the other side of this valley. And every day, there's a huge behemoth of a man named Goliath who walks out and he taunts Israel. And he says, send me someone to fight me one-on-one. And if I win, you guys are all my slaves. But if you win, we'll leave you alone. And of course, no one wants to fight Goliath because not only is their own life at stake, they're risking the lives of the entire nation. And so 40 days pass where Goliath, every day, he just walks out when the sun comes up. He's like, you guys have anyone to fight me yet? I'm ready. I'm here. Let's go. And so everyone's talking about it in the Israel camp. And David hears about this. So he rushes over and he says to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go, referring to himself, and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him. And delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will surely deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's just the perfect passage to describe David's tenacity. I don't know if any of you actually went to see this, but a recent movie called The Revenant came out with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's the one he's finally going to win his Oscar for. And he gets attacked by a bear. And if there's one thing that that movie taught me is that bears are no joke. There was nothing he could have done. The bear just threw him around like a rag doll. But David is this guy that says, look, if a bear or a lion came and took one of my lambs, I chased the bear, took my lamb out of his mouth, grabbed him by the beard, and killed him. And so there ends up being a lot of drama between David and Saul after he beats Goliath. Because he goes out and he takes a slingshot with a rock and he kind of whirls it around and hits Goliath right on the head and kills him. And he became so popular with the people of Israel that it threatens Saul's kingship. And so Saul becomes jealous of David because the people love him. And he's afraid that David will end up usurping his throne. So he tries to have him killed multiple times. And so it's this long drama that lasts pretty much the entire rest of 1 Samuel. And long story short, Saul dies and David assumes the throne of Israel. See, I kind of imagine David being like William Wallace from Braveheart. He goes out and defeats the giant by throwing a rock at him. He fights with wit instead of brute force. He's not the most athletic. He's not the best with a sword. He's just really smart. But ultimately, David's strength and virtue was that he trusted the Lord to deliver him from all his convicts. That's what made David so successful in his military campaigns. That's what made David able to elude Saul time after time after time. And there were multiple times when Saul tried to kill him and David bested him and was in a position to kill him, but showed Saul mercy. David just exemplified the character of the Lord in all that he did. He was a warrior king and he led his people to many many victories on the battlefield. However, he was also a devotional lyricist. He had a heart for worship, and he absolutely loved the Lord. He wrote a majority of the Psalms. If you open your book and open your Bible and flip to the Psalms, pretty much most of the ones you're going to find, David wrote out of his personal times of reflection with God. You see, he loved fighting on Israel's behalf, but he also loved giving all the glory back to God. Of course, he wasn't perfect. Oftentimes, he did display a sinful nature just like everyone else. There was a time when he saw a beautiful woman bathing on a roof named Bathsheba, and he was so captured by her that he just had to sleep with her. And so he did, using his kingful authority to have her brought to his palace. And turns out she was married and he got her pregnant. And so there's this huge scandal. And his solution is that he's going to send out her husband to the front lines of the war so that he'll surely be killed and then she won't be married anymore. And I can have her for my wife. And everything's great. That's his solution. And so David is not perfect. 
But even after the incident with Bathsheba, David repented and turned to the Lord to ask for forgiveness. And the product is Psalm 51. He asked God to create a clean heart within him and restore him to the joy of his salvation. It's such a beautiful image that we receive out of David's failures. We sing the song, White as Snow, because of David's personal meditations. He understood that what God cared about most was the state of his people's heart. And because of that, David was described as a man after God's own heart. Because of his willingness to serve and seek after God's will, God made a covenant with David. And at any time the Bible mentions a covenant, you can bet it's pretty important. Because God has only made three covenants up to this point. One was with Noah, where he promised never to flood the world again. One was with Abraham, where he promised to make him a great nation. And then the last one was with Israel. After he delivered them, he made them his covenant people in relationship with him, and he gave them the law. And now he wants to make a covenant with David. And here's what he promises to do for David. He says he's going to make David's name great. He will give David rest from his enemies. And he will raise up one of David's offspring. And through that offspring establish David's throne forever. And if you're wondering if God ever fulfilled that promise, just think about the fact that we're sitting here 3,500 years later talking about David. So obviously his name is pretty great. Every time God says, I'm going to make your name great, we've heard about it. He did that. And so through David, the nation of Israel is blessed for a long time. He defeats most all of the remaining enemies and leads the people into prosperity. And when he finally died, his son Solomon took over the throne. Which leads us to the second really, really good thing that came out of the time of the kings. And that is the temple. When Solomon took the throne after David, he set out to do the thing which David had originally himself intended to do, but never actually could, which was build a temple. Now at this time, Israel worshipped in what was called the tabernacle, which was basically a large tent-like structure which contained the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a holy chest which held the tablets which contained the law, which was the sign of their covenant with God. And so this was God's special dwelling place. They moved this tabernacle around, but they could never really do more than a tent because they were constantly on the move. And so when they get to the land and David defeats the enemies and there's no one trying to oppress them, for the time being, Solomon has a permanent temple built. That way God's dwelling place would be as permanent as their dwelling in the promised land, and that this would forever stand as a sign that this land belongs to Yahweh. Unlike the tabernacle, it would never be taken down, and God's special dwelling would forever exist. And just as with the tabernacle, the temple was so holy that the Jews weren't allowed to enter inside of its sanctuary unless they had first cleansed themselves through the rite of animal sacrifice. And I know that sounds pretty weird to us. Sacrificing an animal to achieve a certain holiness. But the thought was that the animal would somehow take away the blemish of their sins. That in the killing, 
the animal died in their place and they became clean enough for a time to enter into God's holy presence. The building of the temple was huge for the nation of Israel. Now there was a permanent place for everyone of the nation to come and worship God. And even more than that, it established the Lord's presence in the land of Canaan with the Israels. It stood as a beacon to everyone around that would ever hope of oppressing them again that this land belongs to Yahweh now. So the reign of King David and the establishment of the temple. Those were the huge developments in the nation of Israel in the time of the kings. That's the bulk of all of the information that you need to really understand the final concluding point this morning. Because both were acts of grace from God in the midst of an otherwise horrible, horrible time in the history of the nation. However, both King David and the temple were but shadows of what was to come. The reality is that even though David was a good king, he eventually died. And even though the temple was built, it was eventually destroyed. While they were both signs of God's grace and favor among his people, they still weren't enough to keep the nation out of ruin. Something else was necessary. Enter Jesus. If you've been paying attention to the sermons over the Old Testament so far, you've probably recognized a recurring theme. And that is, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. We've pretty much said that every week since we started going through the Bible. And it might be repetitive, but the reason that we keep emphasizing that is because the glorious reality, church, is that it's true. And the reason we come back to it week after week after week is that every week we read about something new that Jesus fulfilled. In the, in the nation of the kingdom, in that context with David and the king, we see that Jesus is our king, Jesus is our temple, and Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He fulfilled all of those things. At the beginning of Matthew's gospel, he refers to Jesus Christ as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Those two titles are in direct reference back to the covenants that God made with David and Abraham. Jesus is the king that God promised to lead the nation into eternal prosperity through David's bloodline. In John chapter 2, when Jesus is cleansing the temple, flipping tables and driving out oxen, And the Jews come up to him and say, what sign do you have to show for yourself to justify why you're acting this way? Jesus replies, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, referring to the temple of his body. No longer do they need any temple because the temple was meant to be a place for the presence of God. And now that presence is there in the flesh. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. 
So even more miraculously, Jesus is not only the temple by which they can experience the presence of God, he is also the perfect sacrifice that will forever cleanse those who wish to enter into such a holy presence. Every bit of grace that God shows to the Jews in the time of their earthly kingdom finds its ultimate fulfillment in the everlasting grace of Jesus Christ. When they ask for a king, Jesus says, I am your king. When they build a temple, Jesus says, the presence of God is within me. When they are so filthy in their own sin and need a way to even reach the presence of God without being utterly destroyed, Jesus says, I am your sacrifice. Cleanse yourself in my blood and find eternal life. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our temple. And Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. The temple becomes the sacrifice. The king becomes a servant. And all of this took place so that God could ultimately fix what we messed up in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to bring all that information and now place it within the context of the entirety of Scripture. When we ruined the good creation that God had made, he started a chain of events that would ultimately lead human history into redemption and reconciliation with their God. Jesus' fulfillment of every bit of the history of God's dealings with mankind through the nation of Israel can only be described as epic. The Jesus that you learned about when you first came to know of his grace and mercy, whether it be by growing up a child of the church or being invited to it later on or finding Jesus somewhere in your life, that Jesus didn't just fall out of a clear blue sky. The story doesn't start at Matthew. Thousands of years of history had to happen for Jesus to have the impact that he did. And as a result of all of it, you are here today. As a result of everything that's happened up until this point, you are here today. The histories of Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David Those are all your histories. That's the story of how God ultimately redeemed you. The plan did not just belong to the Jews. It extended to everyone. And we look at Jesus as the climax. But you can only understand that climax when you see all of the rising action. This book, from cover to cover, is the story of your salvation. Yours, personally. Starting in Genesis, ending in Revelation, this is how God made it possible to redeem you out of your sinfulness, out of your brokenness, out of your pain. This is God's plan for the world. The ability for you to exist in relationship to Christ the King is just one more chapter in the redemptive history leading up to the grand finale of heaven and earth united once more. This is your story, and God is the author. In light of that epic truth, let's pray this morning. Father, we...
come here this morning to faithfully hear your word proclaimed and to learn more about the story that changed our life. God, we come here this morning as products of what you did through your son Christ. We are the result of his work and his life and on the cross. And as we learn more about everything that had to happen for that moment to come, our response is worship. Father, the more we learn about you, and the more we learn about what you've done, and the more we learn about everything that you have done to rescue the world out of its sinfulness, God, it just makes you feel so much bigger and so much wiser. It makes us realize everything that we really did when we sinned. Everything that really happens in our relationship to you. Father, we see the great lengths that you had to go to to come and rescue us. And Father, we love you for doing it. Father, I pray over every person in this room that even if it's a story they've heard before, or even if it's a story that they've heard for the first time this morning, God, I want to pray over them in this moment that this story, this knowledge of their history would lead them into a deeper and more awesome place of worship before you. Father, we bow down before you as our king, as our temple, and as our sacrificial lamb. And we thank you for being so infinitely wise to enact such a grand scheme. With all of this at the forefront of our hearts, we turn to worship you as a gathered body. And it's in the name of Christ that I pray these things. Amen.